0: Hello, thank you so much for joining us today, and welcome to my home and literally my family's table. I want to invite you to do some heart business with me today, and I invite God's spirit now to come and speak over us in this time. The table is an ordinary place. It's so routine and everyday that it's easily overlooked as a place of ministry. It's so ordinary, yet so full of potential. Have you noticed in the Gospels that Jesus is on mission, inviting people into God's kingdom, armed with the most unassuming yet powerful of weapons, the dinner table? Jesus didn't run projects or establish ministries or create programs or even put on events. He ate meals. Tim Chester, in his book, A Meal with Jesus, points out that there's three ways in which the New Testament completes the sentence, the Son of Man came. In Mark 10, 25, it says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Luke 19:10, we read the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And then in Luke 7:34, we read that the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. The first two are statements of purpose. Why did Jesus come? The third is a statement of method. How did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. Isn't that a dynamic insight that Jesus' gospel strategy often looked like a long meal stretching into the evening? He intertwined his message and his method in such a natural way that we almost miss it. Doing life around the table was one of his favourite ways to enact world change and one of his most profound yet simple strategies for what we would now call discipleship and evangelism and the encouragement of the saints. Luke's Gospel in particular is full of stories of Jesus eating with people. Robert Paris concluded that in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Jesus made discipleship simple and repeatable. May I suggest that the way he made disciples is the way that he intended for us to be able to make disciples. Jesus always opposed complexity because it kills mission and discipleship. But here is something so simple. It's so easy to find. It's already right here in front of us, ready to use and to offer to him. And by setting a table and sharing a meal, we provide the context for which people feel loved, where people feel heard and a place where God's spirit can move. Oswald Chambers was an early 20th century evangelist, and he said this, We always know when Jesus is at work because he produces in the commonplace something that is inspiring. Maybe some opportunities just seem too ordinary to us. But isn't that where most people are living in the ordinary? That's where we need to go to reach them. I can't help but be personally challenged by three things in scripture in this season. Firstly, who Jesus ate with at the table. Jesus turned entertaining etiquette upside down. One of the things that we need to understand is that back in the first century, meals meant more than they do today. They were a way to bring people together and a way to keep them apart based on social ideals. To invite someone to a meal in Jesus' time was an expression of identification with them. So Jesus was saying, these are my sort of people. To the original audience, what Jesus did was dangerous and scandalous. When Jesus invited himself to the house of Zacchaeus, the despised tax collector in Luke 19, it was disruptive to the status quo. Jesus, however, deemed him worthy of time at the table. When Jesus ate with Levi in Luke 6, the message was clear. Jesus had come for the people on the margins and people who had made a mess of their lives. When Jesus ate with the Pharisees in Luke 14, his critique there was a concern for the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. And the list goes on as Jesus continues to eat. Jesus graciously includes those that the world excludes and the behaviors that he demanded collapsed the distance between rich and poor, insider and outsider. Historians recognize now that this was one of the reasons that the church grew so quickly. For Jesus, meals were not a boundary marker, but a sign of God's great welcome into the kingdom. Not a way to keep people out, but a way to invite people in. In this culture at this time, the inclusion of sinners, that was the label the Pharisees gave them, at the table was the most meaningful message of the redeeming love of God. Maybe Luke, when he mentioned food 50 times in his gospel, didn't want us to miss out on Jesus' simple yet revolutionary method. And perhaps if we want to model our table after the heart of Jesus, we should get creative with who we invite. Maybe it's time for us to get up from our safe, anonymous distance and actually live like Jesus lived. Could our table offer grace to all? Secondly, I can't help but notice that the original architecture of the church was a table in a home. Take a moment to let that sink in. Moving on from seeing Jesus at the table, we see the history of the church then continued around the table. For hundreds of years, this is where the people of Jesus met. The New Testament tells the story of how the church spread rapidly from just a few dozen people around the table with Jesus to thousands to a few centuries later when it became the official religion of that empire. How did this happen with no internet or Facebook or sound systems or even church buildings? The gospel spread from one home to the next, one table to the next, all over a meal. Is the power of this kind of architecture coming into focus for you yet? We see continuing right throughout the New Testament the theme of Jesus' apprentices eating and drinking around a table in a home as family. To me, that says something about what the church at its core is. Have you ever noticed the dominant language in the New Testament that describes who we are in relationship to Jesus and to each other? The dominant words are those that translate to disciple or apprentice and to brothers and sisters, or if you wanna go old school, brethren. So what we call the church is by definition, apprentices of Jesus living as family. Meals were central to the life of the early church. In Acts 2, we read that the church gathering itself was a meal. We know that churches met in homes. Often in his greetings, the Apostle Paul writes, and to the church that meets in your home. And in the New Testament, the writers highlight again and again the importance of hospitality. Pursue hospitality. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. Offer hospitality to each other without grumbling. And then this one, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, we see that one of the requirements to be a leader of a church or in a church is to be hospitable. There's no mention of theology degrees. Central to life in the kingdom of God is eating and drinking with other apprentices of Jesus as family. In our Western culture, we now have our Sunday services. At Yorkie, when we're able to meet together, that kind of looks like church around a stage. And Sundays are great. We know that. We've experienced that. And at the moment, boy, we miss that. And I look forward to being together with you again in that space sometime soon. But can I go out on a limb here and say that even though our Sundays are important, they're not enough. The clear narrative of scripture is that we do it together around a table with full disclosure of honesty and vulnerability, a place where we're supported to apply the teaching of Jesus to our everyday lives. I need your story, your journey, your confidence, your testimony, your witness to speak to me, and you need mine. I can't help but wonder what it would look like for us as a church family to mix it up around the table in our suburbs during the week and this came to mind as i sat in my house in lockdown last year i know in my suburb of Wenderee, for example there's around 50 people who call yorkie their spiritual home they range in age from just a few months old to over 90. some of them wouldn't even know each other because we're split up between three different services on sundays Imagine us, people of all ages and backgrounds, eating around tables as brother and sisters in Christ, celebrating what God's been doing in our lives that week, opening the word together, praying together, breaking bread together, and planning how we can bless our neighborhood together in Jesus' name. The people of God acting like the family of God. It's a very simple idea, but most of the life-changing ideas are And third, God never gets the address wrong. Okay, that's not quite in the Bible. I made that up. But let me tell you a story. Stay with me. I will land in scripture. About 13 years ago, Darren and I used to sit in bed at night with a laptop searching for a house to buy. We couldn't afford much, so we were at that entry level. We used to sit there flicking through house after house in our price range and groaning at how ugly they were, knowing that we couldn't afford to reno the revolting. And then one night, this newly listed house popped up. And instead of saying, "Ooh," we said, oh, it actually looked decent and livable. I rang the real estate agent the next morning to be told that it had already sold. How could that be? I said it was only up on the internet last night, but that was the market at the time. She offered instead to take me through a similar house in the same suburb. I figured there was no harm in going to look, so I went with her there. But I've realized just in the past couple of weeks, the gravity of what I said to her about that house. I said, we couldn't live there because our table wouldn't fit. As I left her that day, I said to her in kind of a blasé way, the sale of that other house falls through. Could you just please let us know? She really confidently said, it won't the contracts go through tonight. I was so disappointed because I thought it was for us. So I went home and I prayed that if the house was meant to be ours, that that sale would fall through. The next evening, we got a call from the real estate agent saying, I can't believe it, the sale fell through. We were able to check uh, through a contract that we had that she was telling the truth she was. And within two days of that call, we had looked through the house, got a building inspection, got a home loan over the phone, and purchased it. And as I sit at my table today in that very house, I can't help but remember that God clearly opened the door for us to be here. I wonder how you came to be at your home. And I also can't help but notice as I sit here and look out my window that I have neighbours. In Matthew 22, Jesus tells us that we should have a single-minded devotion to two priorities, to love God and to love others. Specifically mentioned is our neighbour. We usually generalise neighbour to mean anybody, and that's fine. Jesus himself used the word widely. But here's a crazy thought. What if Jesus also meant our actual neighbour, as in the people who live on our street? What if he intended for them to be the primary recipients of our love? What if neighbour is more than your actual neighbour, but it's not less God has a purpose for you being right where you are at this exact time. And part of that purpose is for you to show love to those around you. What does it mean to really love our neighbours? Not with an agenda, not as a project to check off our to-do lists, but cultivating an authentic relationship with them and then letting God do whatever he desires with it from there. I wonder if part of that would be having your neighbors at your table. There are so many beautiful things that happen around tables. Think about your most fond memories there. Of course, hunger is satisfied, but they're also a place of welcome, connection, friendship, a place to belong, a place to unify the family. It's a place where we enjoy one another. We laugh together and probably sometimes at each other. It's a place to encourage and affirm. It's a place where we celebrate life and wrestle through life. It's a safe place to land when real life happens, a place where brokenness is welcome, tears are cried, a place where as we relax around the table, the masks come down and it becomes a place of disclosure where we share our hopes and dreams, we bring our questions, we bring our frustrations and our doubts and our hurts. It's a place where we say to each other, you are welcome exactly the way you are and you are worth showing up for. And I would even suggest it's a place where Jesus is revealed, just as he was in Emmaus on that first Easter Sunday. Okay, so let's do a reality check, though, because we don't live in utopia after all. While beautiful in theory, this is where things get messy, right? The idea sounds amazing, the reality a little bit less. Radically ordinary hospitality does not happen in la-la land. It will cost you. Food costs money. It can be inconvenient. It takes time. It compels us to care more for our church family and our neighbours than our personal status in the world. It forces us to deal with diversity and difference of opinion and with difficult people with all their problems and quirks. Food might even be spilled on your carpet, and you may get left with the cleaning up. And let's be honest, loving some people is just hard. Often our desire is to give love to those who are easy to love, but that is just a cheap love, a cleaned up, less messy version of authentically loving our church family and our neighbour. Following Jesus means getting risky. Following Jesus means hanging around with people who aren't normally our kind of people. Following Jesus means crossing boundaries and cultural divides. How can we ever share his message of peace and reconciliation, forgiveness and love if our table is closed to those that Jesus welcomed? As apprentices of Jesus, we're not called to a life of comfort. We're called to a life of radical obedience. We're called to make sacrifices so that others can be served and might even be saved. And although every single one of our circumstances is unique, if you are a follower of Jesus, living a life committed to kingdom purpose intentionality should mark your life. I believe so strongly that this is a strategic period in the life of the church where there is real opportunity for us to discern a new way forward. Perhaps in this season, Jesus is inviting us to slow down, to eradicate the trivia, to cut out the stuff that just doesn't matter at all in the light of eternity, to unhurry life, to create space to love God with all that you are, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Perhaps it's time for us as believers to see what we've allowed to be stolen from right under our very noses. To see with new eyes the lies that we've been fed. Things like, a man's home is his castle. That's very Aussie. But last time I checked, castles have high walls and moats and defenses designed to kill you if they don't want you in. Things like, our home is our retreat, but, What if we were to see our homes, not as castles to hide from the world, but as havens to which the world came to for healing? And what if we were to see our homes, not as ours at all, but as God's gift to use for him? I want you to dream a little to spark your imagination. Who knows what can come from your home, your table, your family, or your life? What would it look like for you to reimagine your table, your very ordinary table for the purposes of the kingdom of God. I think of this pandemic that we've been living in the past 19 months. Imagine the impact of welcome around a table when people have been starved of that for so long. Maybe the table is where the healing is going to happen, where people find their way back into community again. Maybe what happens at your table will be like healing balm for those who are weary, for those who have felt isolated and lonely. There are lonely people all around us right now. They are in our churches and in our neighbourhoods. Some of you listening to this today might be thinking, I am that lonely man or woman. One of the great gifts we can offer a broken world as apprentices of Jesus is our table where knees can tuck in under the safety of our welcome. You can start today, even in a COVID world, even when we're currently not allowed to have visitors to our homes. Can I just point out here that Jesus, the one who embodied the ultimate lifestyle of hospitality, never owned a home, yet he walked the road of welcome and he offered the gift of invitation wherever, whenever, and with whomever he came into contact. He created a a safe place of belonging. He made room for the other. He invited and he gathered. He was the embodiment of all things truly home, all without a permanent address. So I'm confident that there are things that we can do right now. If you're not sure what, you could just ask God for an opportunity and then keep your eyes peeled. You could use this time to prepare your heart, use your table, as a place for your own discipleship and that of your family. Make sure you're opening your Bible there, praying there, inviting God into your ordinary and everyday moments there. Prayer walk your street and ask Jesus for his eyes for your neighbours. You might be surprised at what you then see. Do the Neighbourhood exercise from this book, The Art of Neighbouring. It's brilliant and I've included it in our study notes this week so you can find it there. The point of this exercise is not guilt or shame at all. It's to move you, to inspire you towards neighbour love. Look at your table. Yep, do it right now. How many seats are around it? In a few weeks time, we should be back to being allowed to have up to 10 people in our homes. Who will you invite to sit in those seats? If your house is a mess right now and you're going to use that as an excuse in the future to not have people at your table, then use this time to clean it up. If you can't cook and you'll use that as an excuse, use this time to Google some simple recipes and try them. It's not that hard. Can I be really honest with you? I need to tell you how I came to be sharing this message today. With Tim out of action, we needed to plan and decide who was going to preach this series. Anthony sent out an outline, asked us to look at it and to see if anything stood out to us. This topic stood out to me. However, when we met on Zoom, Millie said, I'm so excited about that table one. And I sat there thinking, oh, phew, it's not me. But then she added, but I've got three assignments due that week, so I can't do it. My heart sank. I said nothing. Then Ange spoke up and said, I know who I'd like to see preach that one. They're on the screen now, but I won't say who it is. I'll just let the Holy Spirit do the work. I said nothing. Later that afternoon, I messaged her. So is it me who has to preach that table one? Her simple reply was, did God tell you that? I told her she was so annoying and sent her one of those cute loving emojis. It took me until the next day to tell Anthony that I thought it was meant to be me, but I really didn't want to do it. And I felt like I was chucking a big two-year-old tantrum inside, but I wanted to be obedient, so I would do it, but I would do it kicking and screaming. I totally said that to him. The insight you get into what happens behind the scenes. I had to ask myself what was that tantrum about? I so desperately didn't want to preach this. Was it because I knew the hours it would take, the cost to my family in that time as I pained over every word? Was it because I was tired from what had been a really difficult three months for us as a family? But it wasn't any of that. I eventually recognised what it was. I had said at the start of the year that I would never preach about anything I didn't authentically live. And I realized that I have not used this table as God's gift to further God's kingdom. Yes, I've done bits and pieces when it suited me, but it hasn't been surrendered. Honestly, the bravest thing I've done was to have my 9am K team over for lunch. They were really scary. I'm kidding guys, you were gorgeous. We had lots of fun, but that was a big step for me. So I sit here before you today humbled and as one who's repentant and wanting to do things differently and the holy spirit really impressed on me that my authenticity here needed to look like this me sharing my failure with you gotta love being obedient hey But in these months of COVID, I found myself incredibly challenged. I feel like I've been wrecked by the Holy Spirit in the best of ways. And I feel that God has awakened my heart to the potential of this table. So there's no guilt, no shame. I choose to leave the past behind and focus on being intentional with my next steps. I lean in to a perspective shift that will define my future choices. And I encourage you to do the same. It begins with simple, steadfast steps of surrender. And often the small steps repeated over time hold the most significance. You're going to eat anyway. So why don't you do it with others? Just take what you're already doing and repurpose it for the kingdom of God. You can do this. It's not just for outgoing personalities or good conversationalists. There's nothing you must do or change before you begin. Don't be sidelined by fear, fear that you won't measure up, fear that you don't have enough, fear that people will hurt you or consume your time or negatively influence your children. Don't allow the delight of welcoming others disintegrate because of lies swirling in your head. Pursue it with the knowledge that Christ is enough. And a side note for parents, of course you need to be wise with who is in your house, but. Your home is also your kids' learning lab. The children under your roof right now represent the thought leaders of the future. We are training and discipling a new generation of world changers. They need to see what it means to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our own home. It's all part of Deuteronomy 6 parenting. And as we welcome others, our kids will be learning tangible skills that allow hospitality to become a natural outflow of their lives regardless of their gifting or their personalities. All you need is a table. It doesn't even have to be yours. Go out if you need to. And then just welcome. Be attentive to the person in front of you. Express love in a tangible way through your conversation. Have no ulterior motives, no agenda. Just be who you are. You love Jesus. You follow Jesus. That is who you are. You are the someone that God wants to use to impact this generation now. So be present to the God in you and watch what he does over time. As we finish up our time together, I want to share communion with you. A couple of years ago, I had an experience I hope I'll never forget. It was our communion time and our 6pm service over at Yorkie. And as I closed my eyes, I saw a vision that doesn't happen for me very often. But Jesus was sitting on the edge of the stage behind a little table with the communion emblems in front of it. He looked really relaxed. His legs were crossed. He had a smile on his face. And then he held out his nail scarred hands to me and said in a delighted tone, I did this for you. And then I looked into his eyes. They were kind and gentle and strong. And then he beckoned me to come and sit with him at the table. And in that moment, even though in reality, I was surrounded by my church family, it felt like he and I were the only two people in the room that night. It took my breath away and the tears then flowed. This table is for everyone. There's no one unwelcome here. And just like that vision I saw that night, Jesus looks at you and says, I did this for you. What a privilege to come to this table, a place where we can say we are so grateful, Jesus, for your grace, your mercy, your kindness, your goodness, your redemption. Thank you for your body broken and your blood shed. And thank you for your welcome of me. Would you take these next few moments to take communion? In Romans, Paul encourages us to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So this is it, my simple invitation to awaken your soul to the potential of your table. When you step forward and say, I'm willing and available. Life is always better with another. So can we walk this journey together? Just begin where we are and start? What if in this season you were to join my family to begin a journey to recapture your table for the purposes of the kingdom of God? I'm asking you to accept this invitation because this message matters. Jesus lived this way. And then he said, come follow me.